This message was presented at the GYC 2013 conference, Before Man and Angels, in Orlando, Florida. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Thank you so much for that beautiful special music. Good morning, everyone. Uh, we are here for our Sabbath School panel discussion, and we are excited about the next hour that is ahead of us. Uh, my name is Israel Ramos, and um, working with GYC as the previous president. Actually, the previous president is now Justin because he is on his way out, but we have Natasha, the future president. So we have here on this panel, panel of GYC presidents that have the opportunity to interact with the uh, General Conference and North American Division Church of Officers. We want to say thank you for the time that you've dedicated to spend this with us. It's something that GYC looks forward to uh, whenever we have the opportunity. You remember in Kentucky, we had this opportunity, and it was uh, one of the greatest blessings of that conference and a highlight, I think, of many young people's experience. So we are excited uh, about this opportunity again, and we're happy that we have this privilege to interact with you in this question and answer panel. I want to introduce you to our audience. Um, on, my far, uh, on the far length of the table there, we have Pastor Paul Ratsara, representing the Southern African Indian Ocean Division, the longest name for sure, one of the largest, conference, uh, largest divisions, uh, fastest growing, at least one of them. So we're thankful, Elder Ratsara, that you're here all the way from South Africa. Next to him, we have Pastor Bill Knott, in charge of the Review and Herald. We're thankful that you are here with us as well. Uh, Pastor Ted Wilson, the president of the General Conference, and uh, next to him we have uh, Elder James Black, who has been in youth ministry for quite a bit, quite a long time, in charge of North America. Thank you for your time here. And uh, Elder Wilson, uh, not Wilson, <laughs> Elder Finley, who is no, uh, no stranger here at GYC. Thank you for uh, being with us. Just so that uh, the audience knows, we do have a process that we followed in our uh, discussion here this morning, and we want to make that uh, open to you so that you know where we're going. Uh, first of all, we opened the, uh, the uh, email accounts for people to submit questions. Some of these questions, we had many of, the, of, of similar-sounding questions, so we put them together into one general topic. And so we're going to ask these questions in a general format. Some of the questions that were asked had a specific point, and we will ask the point but not directly quote the question just because it's, uh, we try to make it as concise as possible. And some of them will be directly asked as they come to us uh, from the, uh, from the uh, emails that were sent. Uh, the, the topics that we are addressing ultimately fall under three categories. One of those categories is unity. How is it that the church can experience unity even amidst diversity? And so uh, that's one of the topics that we will be addressing, uh, several questions that go along those lines. Another big issue that is on the minds of the young people is the issue of sexuality. Uh, how does the church, the Seventh-day Adventist church, deal with this topic of sexuality, not just sexual temptation, but sexual abuse and so forth? And then finally, uh, Adventist church identity. It kind of goes along with unity, but what makes us Seventh-day Adventists uh, and, and uh how is it that we can represent the Seventh-day Adventist Church together, even amidst uh, many different uh, people, many different backgrounds, many different cultures? We were able to have a discussion with the, the panelists yesterday to prepare for, uh, for this time, and uh, we came up with the understanding at the end that there is definitely a, difference, uh, a different way of thinking. 
as we uh, have more experience, we believe that we'll finally reach the way of thinking of our, of our uh, great panelists here. But at this point, we're hoping that this discussion will help bridge the gap and understand uh, the mind of church leaders and help the church leaders understand the minds of young people. And so our aim here is to be honest and respectful and at the same time to be very open. And uh, we understand and we want our young people to understand that some of the questions that we ask we know are short-sighted. And so we're very open for the church to give us uh, a broader understanding. Just please, let's make sure that we answer the questions that are asked. So with that in mind, we do have uh, the privilege of asking the question. We're going to give that over the first question to our uh, GYC president, Justin McNeilis. Thank you, Israel, for the uh, nice introduction you gave us. So the, the first question I would ask is one sort of of a personal nature. First, a note of appreciation. The church leaders got together and they looked at what was happening at GYC, and you said to yourselves, at GYC, they need a representative at the general council in session. And so you sent me to represent the young people here by GYC. And so that is uh, undoubtedly one of the highest privileges I have had as GYC president. So first, thank you for that. But second, as a banker, I would follow up that question with this. I think it's safe to say that the general conference spends about $5 million on that. That's $50 million of production from the church. Uh, and so my question would be, as a banker, is it worth it? And if I could ask you, Elder Wilson, as our president. All right. Well, thank you, Justin. And uh, it's good to be with you and Natasha and Israel. Um, I want to preface my remarks and any of our remarks by stating that uh, we give our answers humbly, and uh, we may not get everything exactly right, but we do it in the spirit of Jesus. And we would covet your prayers. I love that song that the quartet sang, Someone is Praying for You. In fact, everywhere I travel, people are saying, I'm praying for you, I'm praying for you, and it just is so reassuring. So I hope while we give our answers this morning, that you'll be praying for us. Uh, the General Conference session is a large gathering every five years. At that uh, particular meeting, uh, things are done in a business setting. It is a time in which uh, officers and department directors are elected. It is a time when the church manual is looked at as to whether some changes need to be made. Any changes to the fundamental beliefs that we have are only done at a general conference session. Uh, and some people might say, but you know, we have about 2,700 delegates or so that will be coming. Why can't you just rent a small little place, uh, have a meeting for four days, and take care of things, and a lot less expense? Many of us have actually thought about the possibility of trying to do that and shorten general conference session. On the other hand, there is something very unique. And one has to say the $5 million that the general conference spends, in addition to that, uh, divisions spend money for uh, hotels and all of that kind of thing, airfares. So there is considerable amount of money. And this has been rather transparent. Our uh, Treasurer Bob Lemon, I think, has been very transparent and open about these things. We don't want to hide things. 
Is it worth the money? I suppose I could simply indicate um, an illustration using my precious wife. My wife grew up in Asheville, North Carolina, and uh, probably knew the president of her conference and the pastor. And that was about it. She didn't know anything much about the world field because her world was very focused. She never attended a general conference session until she married me. And when she attended, she was absolutely amazed at the international fabric of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And I think probably one of the most uh, beautiful benefits from the money that is invested, and it is God's money, is the sense of belonging to a world family at a setting like that that you will never get in any other venue. And when you see how God moves in so, so many dramatic ways, then I think we can at least help to justify some of the money that is spent on a general conference session. And at this coming general conference session in San Antonio, and Mark may uh, allude to this sometime, we're hoping to create a very, very mission-oriented setting with an emphasis on evangelism, on our mission, and the coming of the Lord. In fact, that's basically the theme. And so general conference session, I think, in the long run, is well worth the money. You know, I may just pick up on some of the things that Elder Wilson has said. The question is, is it too expensive to hold a general conference session when you consider this $5 million spent on it? I guess you could ask the question a different way. Would it be more expensive not to hold a general conference session? Would it be more expensive not to hold it? The Seventh-day Adventist Church is in over 200 countries in the world. We are 18 million members now. There are 3,000 people baptized every day into the Seventh-day Adventist Church. What if we didn't hold a general conference session? What if the Adventist Church became fragmented as many other Protestant denominations? What if this fragmentation led to wide theological diversity much greater than we did today? What does a general conference session do? Among other things, it brings the church together in a unified focus to reach the world for Jesus Christ. It brings us together as a, as a, as a church family. It focuses on mission. One of the things we hope to happen at this coming general conference session is, you know, every year we end the general conference session, every session at the end of five years, we end the general conference session with what we call the, the Parade of Nations. This year we want to do the March of Mission, where each of the countries represented in that great March of Mission focuses on what God is doing in that particular country to win that nation for Christ. And we're thinking about ending the general conference session with an international baptism with people from countries around the world. Why is the general conference session so important? because it unifies the church in policy and in doctrine and in mission to reach a world in fulfillment of Revelation 14, verse 6 and 7. The, the, the question about the value of unity is one that the church actually looks at not only at general conference session times, but around the calendar, 
throughout the year. What's it worth? And how much are we willing to commit to the, the value of unity worldwide? I look at the magazines that I edit. General Conference, if you go back to 1863, has invested millions of dollars in the Adventist Review and in Adventist World Magazine because it has always placed a high value on what James White called gathering the scattered flock. The natural tendency of human beings is disintegration. Centrifugal force throws us away from each other. And God's call in his church is to gather together, press together, press together, press together, Ellen White says, General Conference session is just an illustration of a fundamental principle of ongoing unity to which the church has always committed great resources and great time. Thank you so much. Yes, Elder Batsara. Um, I just want to add my voice to what has just been said. Um, you see, we take this church, we believe that this is a family, and a family needs to be together to remain together. And to me, the value of the general conference is to give opportunity for this family at least once every five years to be together and to, to say, hey, we are part of this family, even though we belong to a, a small company, a small church far at the extreme of the earth. Look, we belong to a church, a family church. The globalness of the church uh, is to be maintained, and we have to be intentional about this, and that costs money, but it is worth it. I appreciate the honest responses in, in addressing the question, and, and I would just submit also, like your wife, I left more excited to be an Adventist than when I got there. And so from a personal experience, I can say that now. We have a lot of questions, gentlemen, and so we're going to ask that we just get a few answers to each of these, and, and we're going to try and move through these because we have some really good ones coming up. I appreciate the comments that were mentioned regarding uh, the General Conference serving as a means to unite people. I think it's great, uh, you know, uh, comments were mentioned to the fact that it's like a family coming together. You're able to see what's happening around the world. And this, all, the, at least the word that came that stuck out to me was, this is all a movement that helps to unite people. Um, I guess, how would you respond to the fact that sometimes, well, the, the, the general conference, our understanding of the general conference session is it's ultimately a, a large church business meeting. And uh, we would think that um, it is that which unites us would be the Word of God. I mean, that's, at the end of the day, the Word of God is what unites us as Seventh-day Adventists and so forth. Uh, our understanding is that the Seventh-day Adventist church policy is ultimately a representation or, or our understanding of God's Word put into practice. And the question that I have is, if the purpose of the General Conference is to unite us, do you feel that it is fulfilling that, uh, that goal, the goal of unity? especially in, uh, you know, in the light of the fact that it is at general conference sessions that many young people get the perception that unity is not taking place, but the opposite is. Well, I think it uh, simply depends on a person's perspective. Uh, a general conference session is not necessarily a rubber stamp arrangement. Uh, people come to a session or to an annual council uh, or spring meeting. Uh, we have uh, over 300 uh, members of the General Conference Executive Committee. 
They come from every single division. They represent uh, administrators, laypeople, uh, frontline workers. Uh, people are free to express their opinion, and they ought to do that. But it ought to be done uh, in a spirit of intense reliance up upon the Word of God, on the counsel of the spirit of prophecy, and of prayer. And one of the things that we have attempted to do recently uh, is to spend much more time in prayer at the General Conference uh, annual councils that we have and spring meeting, and certainly at the General Conference session we will be doing that as well, where we pray together in order to find the kind of unity that Jesus uh, prayed for himself in John 17. Uh, so when people see that there is disagreement and that there are opinions being shared, that actually uh, should not be a sign that there is not necessarily unity, but that there is an expression that is open. I mean, the Lord has given us the freedom of conscience. And uh, let's just take, for instance, a, uh, a particular uh, issue that is uh, very high on people's minds, uh, the ordination of women to the gospel ministry. And we have set up a, an arrangement where we have a Theology of Ordination Study Committee with many representatives from varying views. Uh, different divisions are uh, weighing in on that. Every division has reviewed things and are putting their own um, uh, presentations to the committee. It will be coming up in just about a, another couple weeks or so. Uh, we've had two meetings already, another one this month and another one in June. The issue will be presented to the annual council where there will be full representation. Uh, we are not hiding anything. We're wanting to do things in an open way, but there will be differences of opinion. Uh, how do we handle that? Uh, how do we handle uh, items that are very flammable and very emotional? And that can only be done on our knees and done in a very prayerful way. And I believe that God will, will guide. I suppose the biggest question that needs to probably be answered is not necessarily that particular question or other questions that will be certainly coming up. But what do you do? Let's say that this particular question is, and I have full thought that it will be sent to the General Conference session to have full exposure and discussion. What happens to you when your particular viewpoint in the final analysis is not accepted and you find yourself facing a challenge? whichever way it may go, and I don't know exactly which way it will go. What do you do? Is your church and the mission of the church worth more to you than some personal impassioned conviction? Now that's something that you have to decide between the Lord and yourself. And uh, I would certainly, as I understand Daniel and Revelation, as I understand prophetic understanding within uh, Spirit of Prophecy Council, that the church at the end will be united in its great mission to proclaim the three angels' messages and to help people know that Christ is coming soon. So I think as people look at how the church works, they should not become discouraged. They should pray more, enter into the 
discussion and activities and realize that the Holy Spirit is going to lead this church to victory. Amen. I, oh, were you going to say something? No? Okay. Go ahead. I would just, just to point out, this is not new for God's church. The longest single portion of the book of Acts deals with the issue of unity. Acts 10 to 15 is, is about when God is doing something in the body, how will we relate? And the significant disagreements are all recorded there very candidly for us so that we can see how God's church resolves issues. That's a biblical way to go about doing business. And it's one that we ought to be paying more attention to as we move forward toward important decisions on our landscape. I appreciate what you had to say about um, unity, not necessarily being absolute uniformity of everyone thinking exactly the same. I'm wondering if you can perhaps clarify a little bit for me um, what the difference is between um, being able to have differences of opinion within the church and being able to have that discussion and um, not all having to think precisely the same and how the general conference um, responds to that versus when the general conference enacts policies that they expect the church to follow. Unity in the book of Acts is really based on four things. When you look at the book of Acts, there is a passion for Jesus Christ. There is a commitment to Christ. The unity in the Seventh-day Adventist Church is based on a common commitment to Christ and the desire to do His will. Secondly, when you look through the book of Acts, there is a commitment based on biblical truth. The church in the book of Acts saw Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament, so there was a real sense of a prophetic identity in the book of Acts. Thirdly, in the book of Acts, there was a unity based on mission, this idea of reaching the world with the gospel. And fourthly, in the book of Acts, there was a common church organization. You look at the conflict between Jew and Gentile and over circumcision in Acts 15, and so there was common church organization. So that was the very basis of unity. Within that context of unity, there can be diversity. There can be differences of opinion. But commitment to Christ, guided by the Holy Spirit into common biblical truth, focused on mission, and focused on a sense of church organization. Now, what if one part of the church, one entity of the church, disregards a policy voted by the corporate church? What can be done? In the Seventh-day Adventist Church, we don't have fiats that come down from the General Conference that dictate what each of the entities, whether they're local churches, conferences, or unions do. But we can express, which we have done recently, strong disapproval for a constituent group or constituent groups that have stepped outside of that policy. So what can the General Conference do if a constituent group steps without a policy, it can simply express its disapproval for that, which we have done in varying days in certain issues. What is policy? Policy is not doctrine. Policy can be changeable, but policy is our mutual understanding and a common agreement, a covenant that we make together as the body of Christ on the way we're going to act. 
That's why it's so critical. I guess I would ask a question then. What about the what about tithe? If it comes, uh, how would how would tithe fit into this this whole thing? Uh, uh, are you speaking in terms of how the obligation of paying tithe or returning tithe? Or the the uh, we believe that tithe, for example, is you know, is, uh, belongs in God's storehouse, and there's, you know, the biblical of, of returning tithe, the tithe going to the general conference, the general conference distributing that tithe back. The system of tithing is, is a biblical system, and I, I would assume it's also a policy. And so there is, to some degree, um, w- w- is there a consistency between the policies that the church, uh, for example, has? Do you, I don't know if you understand what I'm in terms of uh, the principle of tithing, uh, we do take it directly from Scripture. There are many studies that have been done. Um, our Treasury Department uh, spent, well, they along with many leaders, spent over, I don't know, maybe seven years, six years, in a particular commission on tithe to help define exactly how one ought to approach this, what it can be used for, and all that kind of thing. We do believe that tithe is for the support of uh, the ministry and direct evangelistic activity and the mission of the church. It's not to be used for constructing churches. Uh, It's not to be used for just whatever someone thinks is a good cause, Uh, but it is to be given to the storehouse. And then uh, once you return your tithe, because we use the word return, it's not yours anyway, that then the church would decide and not an individual. Um, That, along with um, other aspects, helps to unify the church. Now, the the interesting question that Natasha asked uh, regarding the the, the flexibility in um, how unity and uniformity compare uh, I think uh, that we have to look at, at the big picture and realize that there are some things that the Holy Spirit is in full control of. In other words, the Spirit will lead us into all truth. We have to believe that theologically, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, we will understand what the Bible says. Now, there's a big difference between that and what color of carpeting your local church should put in. Uh, and yet, in both of those areas... There is an incredible need, and I'm going to share it in the sermon as well today, a need for humility and submissiveness. Because if you happen to like a red carpet in the church, but they vote a blue carpet, is that going to wreck your Christian experience? Uh, if, If something theologically is voted and you see that the entire group votes in a certain direction and you're just out there on a limb, are you going to say, no, I defiantly stand here and say you're wrong, or do you submit to the Lord and to the church as it moves in a spiritual way? Thank you. Let me just... Uh, I want to come back to your question. Yes, please. Cause let me, well, let me rephrase okay. it, and then, and then uh, if, if my question is, if tithe is a part of church policy and other, you know, you have not just women's ordination, but you have the issue of sports, you know, uh, in, in our schools or, or music and these sort of things. If tithe is a policy and there are also other policies, uh, 
just women's ordination was mentioned. Why is there a difference in the way that uh, the, the church, I don't, I don't want to say discipline, but in other words, if I decided to divert my tithe or, to re, re, or if I was a church entity or not send forth my tithe according to policy, would I only get a letter from, you know, the, the Review and Herald or the, or the General Conference or whatever? I'd probably come by to visit you. Okay. Don't, don't tempt me. Don't tempt me. <laughs> Israel, I think your deeper question, really what's behind the question is this. We're talking not about individuals but entities. And I think that's an important distinction. If an entity consciously chooses to violate a voted church policy, and again, let's, let's define what a church policy is. A policy is a mutual agreement or a covenant that we make as the body of Christ of how we want to act. It is our best understanding of a topic at that given time. A policy is not doctrine. Doctrine, like the Sabbath, does not change. But policies can change. We can see different aspects of that policy. So let me come right to the heart of your question. What if an entity chooses to violate a particular policy, whatever that policy is, consciously, because they feel conscientiously in not out of, out of harmony with that policy, okay? If they do that, they're on a slippery slope. Although the General Conference does not have constituent authority, because that union, conference, etc., has constituent authority, here is the slippery slope. It's precisely the question you've raised. How then do you deal with others who may say, my conscience is leading me in tithe or other areas? So I think the question you've raised from a young person's perspective is a question that we wrestle with in general conference leadership because we don't have constituent authority. Each individual group does. And I think our concern is this opens the door for other open violations of policy in the area of tithe, in the area of certain sexuality issues that people are going to say, look, this is a matter of conscience, in the matter of a variety of other things. So this leads us to prayerfully work together in a process if policy needs to be changed, not to try to force that change. But I think submission, respect, love, concern for one another, that we're part of the body of Christ. And in the final analysis, the things that unite us are far greater than the things that divide us. If I may, it's kind of hard to speak sitting between these two gentlemen uh, about policy and so forth. But um, no, they're, they're good godly men. Um, I talk with thousands of young adults every year about their church. And in North America, we're trying to do a better job of just listening. And one of the challenges I think we're facing now is when young people ask the question, we can see the process, but then there are some who begin to doubt the process. And I would hope and pray that as we move forward that we will begin to look at our processes. Because what happens is when we look at some of the things that we're being challenged by now, some are already drawing their own conclusions in terms of how they think things are going to turn out. Now, somebody might say, well, that's jumping ahead of the Lord, that's jumping ahead of the process, but let's look at an, an example for a moment. 
in North America, I mean, culture and, and diversity and all this, it does impact us greatly. Um, there are certain practices here that you may find that don't take place in other parts of the world. I'll give you an example. The very first time my wife and I went to a certain part of Africa, uh, she was not accustomed to walking behind me along with the other minister's wife, you know. And that was very difficult for her, but that was a practice there that was apparently a custom there. But at the same time, if we come together at the same table trying to make the decision, we have to really look at process as to how that brings us together in that, in that our foundation, our orientation, that base is different. Now, we can go to the Word of God and find a foundation that hopefully will unite us in our thinking. But I think at the same time, young people are looking at this saying, let's look at our process. Let's pray about our process. Because when we look at the world field, I pray for Elder Wilson. I pray for Mark and other world leaders because it's a difficult task trying to manage a world field. Um, I mean, I honestly pray for them. Regardless of how I feel about the process, regardless of how I feel about the outcomes of things, I know it's a difficult challenge trying to bring everybody together with the same type of thinking. But I think the spirit of Christ is what unites us. So that if I disagree with a position, I'm not mad at my church, but we're all still in love with Christ. So let me just jump in because I'm listening to the conversation and I appreciate it. But we're sort of talking about lofty ideals. So we're talking about general conference session. And, you know, a young person may even come to hear and and hear the great uh, sort of what we might call best case scenario answers. But the reality is there's a lot of young people that aren't experiencing best case and so, for instance, you, you pick the, your favorite hot topic, if it's music, if it's women's ordination, whatever it is, there may be a young person that comes and listens to you and sees the policy in the church manual on music, for instance. And, and I was very vulnerable with you last night, expressed my views on music. I, I really don't care about it, um, which don't, don't hold me against that. But I've, I've looked at it very objectively. And, and the reality is, if we're just being honest, they will listen to you but then they go back to their local church, and the local church isn't following that. And so what advice or what response would you have for the young people here that they're hearing your, your great, lofty, philosophic ideas, which are fantastic and we can appreciate, but then we're not seeing it practice at the local level? I've watched over 35 years now from when I was in college the value of persistence in the life of changing a local congregation's perspective and viewpoint about many things. There is nothing so successful and so powerful as godly persistence. If you have a conviction about music in the life of your congregation or a form of worship that doesn't seem to you to be following the policy that the church has offered guidelines on or seems to be moving against the counsel of Scripture, You've got an obligation, a responsibility, and I would add a privilege to go and make that case to the responsible leaders of your congregation and to persist in it. I have watched young adults successfully change significant policies of the Seventh-day Adventist Church because of their persistence in continuing to bring their perspective in front of leadership. That works at the local level. It also works at the, at the general conference level. And that's why many of us are encouraging, stay with the process. Don't drop out. Don't back out when something in your local congregation is out of line. And I've pastored enough congregations to know that there can be things out of line. So um, there's no suggestion that there's some panacea of, of righteousness all everywhere. There are problems that need to be addressed, but they can be if we're respectful, 
careful, thoughtful, prayerful, and persistent. I appreciate that. I really do. But again, sort of best case scenario, they're relentless. They're trying to get their, their local church to subscribe to the church manual. Just give us some counsel when that's not happening. Even as if we've been persistent, as, as you're suggesting, but then what, what happens when that's not happening, even after the persistence? The genius of the Seventh-day Adventist Church is that uh, this is a global church. It's globalness. And when we study, uh, for example, the Constitution and the bylaws, I like a section there that it is you are part of, part of, part of. That means a local church is part of a, a local conference. And the local conference is a part of the, of the union. And the union is the building block of the general conference. And, of course, the division is the division of the general conference. Uh, so uh, this is be- beautiful. It is really a genius of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. That means... Uh, the first thing that uh, I would like to advise uh, humbly is that we need to have a strong conviction first that this is the church of God. Amen. This is the remnant church. Uh, according to the prophecy, this is a prophetic movement. There will be no other denomination after this. I think that helps us to put everything in perspective when we deal with difficult issues. It is just like a, a, a marriage. If you have the commitment that uh, a, a, the solution is not divorce or separation, then you, it will work it out. Uh, you sit down and uh, make it work. But if you, your commitment is so low, anything can say, oh, no, this, this thing is not working. I will I'll be out of this. So the first thing is to a strong commitment to the church, of course, to God and to his church. This is a remnant church. And you are part of it. Uh, I forgot to mention that the first part is the individual membership. The individual member is part of the local church. So if you try very hard uh, to pray humbly and to dialogue, um, and it seems that uh, uh, you don't go through, uh, don't give up. Don't say, okay, this is apostasy. I am out of here. Uh, You continue to pray. And uh, you continue to dialogue, and the Holy Spirit will work. And uh, you continue, and maybe you don't find result at all, but uh, you are sowing a seed. Uh, the result will germinate, maybe after you. So keep going, uh, doing it humbly, but with perseverance. And the last thing I would like to say is that if you see that, don't lower your commitment to a mission. Uh, you need rather to do even more, get involved more, and that will help you uh, to overcome any kind of discouragement. Thank you. As we move on to the next uh, topic of conversation, I have a question here from uh, a young person who emailed it to us. His name is Joel. Many young people perceive the church as having become too institutionalized and bureaucratic, playing defense rather than innovating. I'll stop the question there, continues on. But I'm wondering, what are things that the General Conference uh, is doing in innovatively evangelizing or targeting the world around us that you can share with us as young people today? Uh, There are many things that are happening, uh, including small group development all over the world, uh, mission to the cities, 
which is one of the greatest challenges I think that young people have today to help us to reach over 50% of the world's population using spirit of prophecy methods. Uh, the comprehensive health ministry that uh, we're trying to emphasize, medical missionary work, which is uh, very much a part of the final loud cry. Uh, we have initiated a, a wonderful program which we hope will grow uh, one year in mission uh, where young people all over this world will be sponsored by their local churches or by entities to give one year in service locally or could be outside of their local area. Uh, we have uh, international uh, evangelistic activity that's taking place in an unprecedented way. Uh, we have integrated media evangelism, which is uh, rising to such a level that uh, it is phenomenal what God is doing through every platform and format of media today. Uh, but the most important thing is that age-old principle of each one tell someone. And I think we have to come back to that as well. But there are exploding opportunities in evangelism. One simple example of that, later this month I'll be in India. And, you know, India is a country of over one billion people. It took us a hundred years to have our first hundred thousand members in India. But in the last 15 years, we have gone from about 100,000 members, or actually we then continue to develop our membership, but we've added a million members in 15 years. India has more Seventh-day Adventists than any country in the world, 1.6 million. But you talked about innovative methods of evangelism. We have village workers, young people, going into villages in India now, beginning a Bible studies and starting hundreds and hundreds of young people and Bible workers in India. It's amazing what's happening. They're Indians' background, speaking the local languages. And we'll have the largest satellite evangelistic program in the history of the Adventist Church in a few uh, weeks there. We'll have 50,000 cities involved in downlinks across India. So I think what Pastor Wilson has said is, is so clear, and that is the integration of every aspect of the church, whether it's publishing, education, whether it is media, whether it's health ministry, into a comprehensive evangelistic focus, uniting pastors and lay people. This, I think, is the wave of the future for Adventism, constantly focusing on mission and the fulfillment of Matthew 24, verse 14, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations, then the end shall come. And, and I think one of the things that we would hope as church leaders is that as you leave GYC, you are more committed to the mission of the church than going back and arguing about a particular thing in the local church. That you would go back really with a passion to be actively involved in some aspect of soul winning and winning people to Christ and winning them to the Adventist message. I've been struck so many times when I attend events like GYC or the ASI convention how important it is for us to not define the church by the leadership that comes from the general conference. That is a portion of what God is doing, a significant 
guiding portion, but it is by no means a description of everything God's doing. One definition that someone has offered for what leadership ought to be doing is figuring out what the Holy Spirit is doing in the church and getting in on it. When I walk and talk through the exhibit halls, when I talk with young people here, I discover that the Holy Spirit doesn't send every good idea through the general conference. In fact, the Holy Spirit is at work in thousands of minds here, inspiring them to move, be creative, try new media, talk with leadership, ask for support, ask for resources. That's one of the things that we can help with. We're not here to come up with all the good ideas. We're here to help resource what God is doing in the church. You were talking about innovative things in terms of evangelism. One uh, church area is even offering... Uh, special assistance in funeral services for those in, a, in communities who seem to have no connection to a church. And, you know, out of that, they're able to touch lives. You can use every possible creative uh, method. And what uh, Pastor Finley was saying is absolutely correct. Get involved in the mission of the church and not in fighting and in, in heavy discussions on things that really are not eternally of great value. Amen. Thank you for that. I, I appreciate that, and that's very inspiring um, to know how we can get involved in the, in the mission of the church without getting distracted. Um, moving on to another question that was sent in by an attendee. Um, this is a young woman. It says, how can I believe what the Bible has to say about God protecting us when he didn't protect me when I was a child from sexual abuse? One of the tragedies of the life of the church throughout time has been that sinful human hearts take their sin and by violence affect other lives. And the church has to be very strong in its statement that it will not tolerate this kind of behavior, that it supports those who've been victimized, that it offers a place for healing and restoration. The challenge, as, you've well, as this questioner well stated, is where was God in all of this moment? Scripture tells us that God weeps with the expression of human sin, but that his decision to allow human beings free choice means that he can't step in and intervene in every moment. He continues to work to build up to restore those who are hurt and broken by life experiences and to offer repentance to those who were their abusers. When we wrestle with these issues, we come back to the mystery of saying, I have to trust God, as Job said, in the middle of my pain, in the middle of my struggle. I'm sitting next to a brother who's been through some of that pain and some of that struggle recently in his own life, and I hope he'll tell you about it. Thank you so much. Um, this is really, uh, I would say, a very uh, real issue. Um, last year, it is already last year, this is 2014, there's been a, a very difficult time for me and for my family because uh, I have lost uh, three loved ones. I started the year uh, by losing my uh, nephew, dedicated young man, 38 years, church elder, died a year ago, January, 
And then my wife was sick, uh, struggled with cancer, and um, we did everything. We prayed and did all the treatment that we could give. Um, but finally, God allowed her to rest about uh, three months ago. And uh, we, we buried her. That was on uh, Sunday. And then my sister, my, my sister died a uh, few days after that. That was Wednesday night. Burial was on fr- uh, Sunday. And then Wednesday night, my sister died. So three loved ones. So I've been processing this. Uh, why? Of course, the first thing I resolved is that I should never blame God. Uh, when I look, when I look what He has done for me, I have no right to say that no, uh, God has abandoned me. Um, so the first thing I would say, if you pass through uh, challenges and difficulties that I don't know why, and it is so much, uh, first thing is that resolve by the grace of God, not to blame God. Uh, secondly. We, we need also to, uh, to know that uh, this world is a battlefield. We are in the middle of the great controversy. And in a battlefield, uh, there are two camps, and you have casualties. Uh, we should not either say, well, it happened to me because, uh, because of my fault. Uh, and then on top of the grief, you add guilt. And that will be even more. Even if it's, uh, let's say, some of it is because of your fault, we have also the forgiveness of God. So we should not allow ourselves to be overwhelmed by the grief, overwhelmed by, by the guilt. Because I just want to read quickly text that really helped. Uh, it is very clear. It is in uh, Isaiah chapter 53. It is a very familiar text. It is said in verse 4 and verse 5, said, Surely uh, he has borne our griefs uh, and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. And verse 5 says, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes... We are healed. So God, God is a healer, not only a physical healer, but emotional, spiritual. So those who experienced abuse was something difficult in life. Remember, God is a healer. And uh, he heals now. And of course, the ultimate healing is when Jesus comes, when this temporary will go and the permanent one will will come. So uh, take courage. Don't be discouraged or overwhelmed by this. Look up to God, and God will help you. And be positive in the Lord. Thank you, Elder Ratsara. Uh, we, we do have, um, and we appreciate those, uh, the, the advice. Um, it's, it's alarming, the statistics that we have regarding uh, sexual sin, sexual temptation, etc., uh, some statistics uh, that were emailed in, 48% of Christian students struggle with pornography. 68% of these young people are watching pornography on Christian school computers. They're owned by the school on, on school equipment or church equipment. 
one in three women, 70% of men, 18 to 34, struggle with pornography and uh, self-abuse, etc. cetera. Uh, it seems as though the Seventh-day Adventist Church doesn't provide, uh, or, or what is the Seventh-day Adventist Church doing to provide uh, support and resources for these young people uh, in our church today? Right, right now, we're dealing with a situation worldwide Whereas our entire world is just jacked up. Um, how we think, how we process, how we see life. Before we get to church, we have a whole world telling us that if anything feel, feels good, just do it. Everything seems to be redefined nowadays. People don't care about what the Word of God teaches. Everyone comes up with their own definition. The moment someone finishes a dissertation, then that becomes social you know, practice and, and these kinds of things. And I think one thing we have to get back to is, is, is what God intends for our happiness in this world. Um, right now, we have a situation where because of the Internet and the access to Internet, all you got to do is pull up your iPhone right here, and I can be sitting here in a religious service and pull up my iPhone and see anything I want to see. Our world has totally changed. And because of that easy access, you say to parents, well, watch your children, teach your children, train your children, have devotion with your children. They can leave devotion and pick up their iPhone once again and get easy access to this stuff. And so we're facing a different kind of world. But having said that, I think we have a responsibility to society to be a standard for God in terms of standing up for what's right. The challenge is a lot of young people are now confused about what is right and what is wrong. Because what they're seeing on television, what they're hearing from their friends... Parents and the church are no longer educating young children in terms of what is right. I'm having young men ask me, you know, how do I be a man? A young lady asked me, how do, you know, how do I be a woman? Well, I asked my wife, could you please talk to her? And so we're allowing the world and the streets to define for our children, you know, what God has intended for them. And it's becoming very confusing. So when we come to the, to, to the cross genders, to the homosexual and gay issues and so forth, we have a confused world. But I don't think that means we have to relax. And because of political pressure, we can't openly talk about the issues that's facing our world and the church. One thing that's frustrating me right now is how everybody has to be so politically correct as to not to offend gay people. You know, well, I don't want to offend anybody, but if someone asks me the truth, about what God's plan is for their life, I'm going to tell you the truth. I'm not intending to offend. I'm going to love everybody, but we have some issues. And I praise God that through spiritual guidance and direction, I see former homosexuals and former gay folk come to Jesus Christ and rebuke that lifestyle all the time. And we have to believe that and claim that. Let me just touch on one thing that's really crucial when it comes down to self-abuse in terms of the whole sexuality issue because we've got to come to the point where the church feels comfortable talking about sexuality. It's not doing the nasty. We've got to talk about this thing. This is something that God gave for our good to the marriage institution. We've got to get between a man and a woman. We've got to get back to that discussion. When I hear a young man says to me, Pastor, is it okay for me to masturbate? And he's looking at me with sincerity. He really wants to know because society has taught him if it feels good, just do it. There are some young people who feel that it's less of a sin to do that rather than to actually engage with someone. We've got to address that honestly. And here's what I share with someone. We were created in the image of God. God made no mistake when he created us. He knew what he was doing. He said it was very good. The moment you enter, and I'm just going through the core of it. We don't have time for a full workshop this morning. But when you engage in that kind of activity, you are engaging in the counterfeit. 
you are engaging in that which is superficial. And anytime you go down the road of counterfeit and superficial, you are practicing what is not real. So what happens is, after a lifetime of doing that as a teenager, when it's time for you to get married, you have no idea what the marriage experience is going to be. And we have individuals not getting married, and they're saying, there is nothing here. Why? Because you have lived the counterfeit. You have lived the superficial. Get back to what God says. He made no mistake when he made man and woman, and in the marriage institution, we come together and be sexual. But what happens is we as a church have to become comfortable with at least talking about it and giving guidance and counsel to children. And by the way, please do not excuse little children when it's time for the discussion. Please not ask them to leave the room as if this is virgin for their ears. And the idea of being a virgin is not a foreign word anymore. Live for God. Ask God to sustain you. I want to just share with you one scripture that is my foundation because oftentimes young people ask me, well, pastor, as a pastor, how do you, uh, you know, are you ever tempted? Of course, I'm a human being. And, I, and, and one thing I don't do, don't ever trust yourself because you feel you're spiritual, you're holy. That's dangerous ground. Here's what I read every single day. James 4, beginning with verse 7. Submit yourself to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. I don't trust James Black. I trust God. Finally, I have to say this. When it comes to the initial question uh, of the person who was abused, in the church, and I'm speaking as a youth director now, if you violate or abuse a child, you go to jail. You go to jail. We have a responsibility to protect children. I speak to too many young adults and parents now who were abused as children by members of the church. That has to stop. But just understand that child abuse is not legal anywhere. It is illegal. And if you abuse a child and so forth, we don't call the church board. I have to report that as a crime. Everyone is innocent until proven guilty, but we have a fiduciary responsibility to protect children, not just in the Seventh Adventist Church, but throughout the world. Thank you. Elder Black, I, I just wanted to thank you. I've had young people texting me from the audience thanking you for your um, response to that question. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much. We, when, we, when, we go the, when we go to the website, Adventist Church website, a young person, um, I guess what I'm wondering is the statistics are are alarming. You know, I'll read them again. One in three women and 70% of men 18 to 34 struggle with pornography. That means that's the crowd here. A lot of them are 18 to 34, and there's a good mixture of men and women. And so I think that it's, it's clear to a lot of people uh, the, what the Bible says about uh, sexuality and so forth. I guess the question was more regarding people who are struggling with these things. What is the Seventh-day Adventist Church doing to assist uh, them in these situations? So we go to the Adventist Church website, and uh, it's very, very easy to find out uh, what's the latest news uh, regarding certain items. It's easy to find out how the church is divided into 13 divisions and so forth. Now, if a young person goes to that, are they finding any support for what happens if I am one of the uh, 70% of the young people, 18 to 34, that struggle with pornography? What, what can I do? Is there any resource, Adventist resource, that supports them, that helps them not understand whether it's right or wrong, but how to overcome? 
If I may just speak very directly in a direct response, look at the January 9 Adventist Review, an article by Wayne Blakely, Ministry Not Magic, addressing the issue of how to deal with the phenomenon of homosexuality in the life of the church and to being very clear about the biblical response we have to be both kindly and clear in our holding to the biblical standard. Uh, there's a resource. You'll find it online as of January the 9th, and you'll find it in print on that date, too. The church is actively beginning to move into this area, providing resources, speaking more directly. James, you're absolutely correct. We've got to do a better job. But it, we, we've, we've got our resources aligning toward beginning to create real substantive help for people who are wrestling with questions. There are many resources that are available from Family Ministries Department, uh, both the division and uh, the general conference and other levels as well. Uh, the youth ministries department, of course, women's ministries. There's a, a lot of good information that will help people. To those who have been abused, uh, I would echo the, the viewpoints that have been stated that there is real hope, and the hope is not just in trying to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, but it is in focusing and centering your thoughts and understanding in Jesus Christ and in being born again. There is hope every morning. There is new hope in Christ. Uh, and I, I, I appreciate what uh, Pastor Black has said regarding uh, the church and its intolerance to the kind of abuse for children, but abuse for anyone, whether it is an older an older person, or whether it is a, a young lady at, a, at, a, at a, an academy, or young men, or whatever it is, uh, the church institutions and organizations must be very vigilant in holding the Christ-like standard high, and for eliminating uh, the tendency of people to simply put things under the rug and move on. Uh, we must hold people accountable. And, uh, you know, in terms of pornography and everything that's hitting people today, uh, our best answer is simply to focus on those things which are real and positive. Uh, Philippians 4, cha uh, chapter 4, verse 8, and understanding how Christ can give us the victory. That's what the Christian life is all about. There may be some young person here thinking, you know, I have really been struggling with this temptation or that, and I've fallen again and again, and I, I feel kind of disappointed in myself. There may be somebody watching on 3ABN that feels that way. And the question is, where is there a hope when you know you have fallen more than once? And there's a marvelous passage in Scripture in Joel chapter 2, verse 25, where the prophet Joel says, speaking of God, I will restore to you the years. Here is the incredible good news. It's never too late to begin making positive decisions. It's never too late. God's forgiveness is there. God's power is there. God will restore the years, not by letting you go back and living the last five over again, but by giving you new years in the future. So the good news is God wants to do for you exceedingly abundantly what you could ask or think. If you failed in the past, he'll restore those years, and he has a marvelous future for you. Just as another resource, um, 
AdventistYouthMinistries.org, we have a listing of resources that are very supportive there. Um, also, I think we need to remember that even though as a church, we have a responsibility to, to resource. And sometimes uh, we, may not have, we may not have the most effective resource. And partnering with other Christian organizations who are Bible-based, there's a lot of great resources out there to, to aid the church. And so let's not, uh, you know, uh, uh, be fearful of that. But I also want to say that when it comes to the question of pornography, one thing that really concerns me is that um, um, uh, uh, how close we are to pornography in our homes. Um, if you have cable television and your children have access to those kinds of things, uh, whether it's magazines or books, the movies we watch, people go into Redbox. And, and if something is rated R, I mean, no one has to talk about what rated R is. You know, and what happens is we don't look at a good movie as drama because we're looking at the overall drama as pornography. And many times these things start in small steps. And before you know it, you start liking it. And before you know it, that's all you do. Let us just be very careful in terms of what we feed our minds. As, as the civil law says, let us be careful in God well the avenues of our souls. Well, thank you very much. We appreciate your honesty and your vulnerability. We didn't share the questions with you ahead of time, and we appreciate you willing to answer them. And I think out of respect, uh, we'll give the last question to Elder Wilson, and it would be very fitting for a, a question to come from a president to a president. Uh, but I'm on my way out. And so I'm going to turn the time over to the last question to be asked by our president, Natasha. So, Elder Wilson, you know, I really appreciate um, the atmosphere that you have created, willingness to come, all of you, and speak with young people. I think there can sometimes tend to be a perception of a difference between the way young people think and the very black and white and, um, and the way our church leadership thinks. So what is your, um, what is your primary advice to invested young Adventists that as they're interacting with their church and their church leadership? I hope that every young person here and those watching on television, those who might hear in some way, that you are a vital part of the worldwide Seventh-day Adventist church and never give up on this church. One of the things that is very heavy on our hearts is the, the outflow of young people from the church. And this is a perennial problem, but it is a real and a critical one. And the church is trying to do something about that and about uh, people leaving the church in general. But I would just want to appeal to every young person, get involved in your local church. Be a part of what's happening. Don't just throw your hands up and stay in a corner. And to those of you who are older, Get to know the names of young people. Include them in activities. Ask them how they're doing. Young people, get involved in service to the church. And regardless of what you may face, uh, remember this beautiful gem from Acts of the Apostles in the first chapter. Enfeebled and defective as it may appear, the church is the one object upon which God bestows in a special sense his supreme regard. It is the theater of his grace in which he delights to reveal his power to transform hearts. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, please visit us online at www.gycweb.org.